This presentation is from Service Design Canberra 2016. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au. Uh, so this is Irith. She is super interested and involved in health, um, which is an area that a lot of service designers are um, interested in but aren't sure how to get into, how to tackle. So today she's going to share um, a lot of what she's learned from being involved in that industry so that when you go to, do, to try to work in the industry or to, to tackle projects, you know a bit more about it. Thanks. Yeah, I have got a big She loves all that messy exploration and, and really connecting with people and getting inside their heads. So one day, Ashley finds herself in a very unfamiliar workplace. It has a lot of extremely complex technology. It has a lot of very ugly desktop applications and it has a lot of pieces of paper. And people use all three of those interchangeably throughout their day. It has no designers, it has no design studios, sharpies or post-it notes. And um, in the middle of this institutional, um, impersonal context, there are people facing incredibly intense, intimate experiences, pain and scary medical procedures and disease and fear and maybe even hope and courage and compassion. Experiences like I had when my son was born at six months pregnant and he was 860 grams. He spent 91 days in intensive care and special care and he came home on oxygen. So Ashley is just bursting to connect with people and to try and use her design tools to work out how to support people who need access to health care. But she is feeling constrained in this institution. She's feeling like there are obstacles in this scientific culture. Let me just explain a little bit more about some of those barriers. There's a really fantastic talk on Vimeo by Lorna Ross, who's um, a lead designer, a design lead at Fjord, and she's the design strategist at um, the Centre for Innovation at the Mayo Clinic. And the Mayo Clinic is an internationally renowned teaching and research institution. And um, we've talked to, heard a lot about complexity already today, and she describes some of the complexity at Mayo. Let's have a quick look at um, what Lorna shares. So at one point, she talks about the growth of the Mayo Clinic over 100 years from, or 110, from 1900 to 2010. And it started in 1900 with two brothers, Will and Charlie, and by 1925, it had expanded to 13 divisions. From 1925 to 2010, the 13 divisions grew to 42 divisions. And we can all imagine the sort of complexity that's involved there. Let's have a closer look at one of those divisions. This is the internal medicine. I don't even know what that means. Like, isn't all medicine internal? Anyway, let's find out. So um, the internal medicine... Division has 13 divisions inside it. Okay, we, we are getting complex here. Let's have a look at one of the divisions inside the internal medicine division, which is cardiovascular medicine. I know what that is. It's to do with heart, right? So cardiovascular inside internal medicine, what does cardiovascular division look like? Whoa, it's got 26 um, clinics and 13 specialty labs. So it has... 39 clinics. And this is from 2010 
the cardiovascular, today the cardiovascular division has 67 clinics and specialty labs. And Mayo as an institution has over 60,000 staff members. What is the impact of all this hierarchical and institutional complexity on the people who work there? And what are the implications for Ashley, a human-centred designer? Well, we can have a guess, right? Silos, strong cultural barriers, environmental and um, physical barriers that make it really hard for people to collaborate and particularly make it hard for um, collaborative design activities. And Lorna Ross talks about these barriers in her presentation. And so did um, Michelle Berryman and Vicky Haberman gave a presentation at UX Australia 2011 on UX in surgical environments. And they describe similar um, effects on them trying to do their work. So um, from my experience in having a look at, at what's been shared um, from, from those designers, let's have a look at what that medical culture is like. So we, can, we know it's inherently scientific. Um, they don't like making decisions without an evidence base or being seen to make decisions without an evidence base. It's reductionist. Like some of the people in the room, they don't like messy things. Um, it's hugely bureaucratic, extremely high risk. The smallest mistake can have really awful repercussions. It's um, a very risk-averse culture with very high privacy protocols. It prefers a consensus approach to decision-making and it's largely not-for-profit. So let's compare medical culture with design culture. Design culture is inherently playful. Um, it is empiricist, but we're happy with just enough data to move forward to the next iteration. It values saturated, saturated messy data. Designers love playing in the sandpit of messy data. If it's good, it's collaborative and user-centred. We embrace a fail-early, fail-often philosophy in order to move us forward to the next iteration. It celebrates and values creative and imaginative and risk-taking activities and thinking. Quite often in design project, projects, there's a product owner who has responsibility for the final decision, and it's usually in a commercial environment, although in this room, maybe, maybe not. Um, so we can see there are in inherent tensions between medical culture and design culture. And Lorna Ross does a really lovely description of um, this dissonance in her experience. Through imagination, and that's another word I really love and use a lot. And at Mayo, it's a, it's a word that makes people very uncomfortable because you know, design is a word that's really non-traditional there. Creativity is a word that's not used frequently. And in imagination, they might just like, send you to the psych ward, you know, thinking that it's just like, so far out of purview. So Ashley starts to experience this. She has people tell her why she can't do what she wants to do. Oh, no, I'm sorry, that's not safe for patients. You don't have ethics approval to see our data. And none of our staff have time to talk to you oh, that would breach medical protocols. You, you're not going to be able to do that. So every time she wants to do the early, open, exploratory design activities, she's met with resistance and scepticism. People understand that she wants to explore the problem area, so they really helpfully offer her medical journal scholarly articles to read. They're very uncomfortable with her language, and this, this cultural clash that's happening is a real problem for practice. She just can't get 
to do anything that she wants to do. She feels stuck and time is running out. Where does she begin? Luckily, she hears about the UX Australia service design presentation on a map. And she thinks, that's what I need, something to help me make sense of the complex and the unfamiliar. So let's make a start. A helpful starting place is cross-cultural design, research and practice. And there are some really helpful principles from cross-cultural interaction design. So let's have a quick look at those principles, or five of those principles. Embeddedness, reciprocity, intrinsic currency, modes of interaction, and crossing knowledge boundaries. And I'm just going to gallop through those at the moment. Um, embeddedness is about designing from within, designing from within the clan. It involves a personal commitment and even a willingness to be initiated into the clan. Um, and I just want to say to Jess, I love the name of your agency, Situ. Is just, it took me a while to realise, and then when I realised, I loved it. So um, reciprocity is about what's in it for the other team members. What, why are they, what outcomes are they looking for? Why should they disrupt their lives? Why should they come on this design journey? And intrinsic currency is about what has value in the culture? What is it that people exchange? What is it that they share? What builds people's capital in the domain? Scholarly articles and scientific data and scientific reputation is what works in medicine. Modes of interaction is about the types of languages that people use. There's a lot of medical jargon and a lot of academic jargon. Rituals is about um, how, do they, how do they share knowledge with each other? How do they exchange with each other? How are people included in and how are people excluded from the clan? And remembering back to silos, these principles of cross-cultural design apply to the silo inside the silo. Each silo has its own cultural habits and it operates in its own set of assumptions. <laughs> And the designer needs to be situated in that. Crossing knowledge boundaries is a complicated way of saying collaboration. And collaboration is important for that silo busting, for trying to um, get across. And healthcare, healthcare is intrinsically um, multidisciplinary and cross-disciplinary. Cross Project design teams in healthcare um, are always going to be driven by that that diverse domain knowledge. That's where the creative ideas come from and the designer is the facilitator to turn that into something actionable. A handy way to approach this challenge of collaboration is um, something that I found helpful is to um, be involved in co-creating a design language. Um, and I just want to share with you the design language that we created on the health map study that I worked on a couple of years ago. Um, a design language is not owned by the designer. It's compiled by the team. It's understood by the team and applied by the team. Um, so to introduce the HealthMap design language, HealthMap was a, or is, a clinician and patient portal to manage chronic disease risk factors for, for cardiovascular disease for the ageing HIV positive population. And at one stage we had a generative workshop led by our lead designer, Alex Tam, where we explored project data, design research data, and had the domain expertise of the team, which was about 40 years of working with um, the HIV-positive community. 
And very simply, our design language is pointy and soft. And pointy is about um, the medical, scientific, unemotional, uh, quantitative aspects of managing health. And soft is about the emotional, the affective, the human, the lived experiences aspects of managing health. And while this was a really handy tool for us to use in our design work, I actually suggest that it's a framework that we can use for healthcare as, as a broader context. Um, and Ashley can um, make use of it as a lens to look at the landscape that she's in and use it to identify landmarks that she can navigate by. So what are the hard and pointy landmarks for design in healthcare? What are the, those immovable mountains that she needs to navigate? The first one I suggest is metrics. Um, every project will have its reporting requirements and its evaluation points. Ashley, as a designer, needs to think about very early on, what are some of the things that can come out of design that can support those priorities? What are some of the quick wins about data that I can feed through to the broader project? Um, how can design thinking help with those requirements? Lack of time is endemic to healthcare. That means that the service design tools that Ashley uses need to be guerrilla and she needs to be nimble in her thinking. She needs to take advantage of the small windows of opportunity that open up to have access to staff and patients and other stakeholders. And she needs to be grateful for those small opportunities. She needs to be strategic and think about what are the priorities for the types of data and insights that she wants to get and what's the most feasible way of addressing those opportunities. And remember that for staff members, involvement in a design project is potentially time taken away from patient care and it's definitely a burden on their colleagues as they lose that person to the design project. So this is where our cross-cultural principles come in really handy. Regulatory, there's a lot of people in the room who know a lot more about that than me. Healthcare is full of protocols and procedures. And Ashley needs to have a designerly strategy for compliance, but also how to get things done. And being able to make explicit um, design activities and design tools, especially to something like a medical ethics review board, is really, really important and a skill that she needs to develop. So the fourth is a pointy feature that has a potential to kill a project. Um, and this is a quote from my old boss, health IT is a graveyard of good intentions and the murder weapon is, no surprise to service designers, the backstage. And as we've already heard today, <laughs> that backstage can go very, very deep through multiple layers of complexity. Um, and so, it's particularly in health, if it's not seamlessly connecting with different parts of a system, backstage at the back end, people just won't use it. It doesn't matter how delightful something is. If it's standalone, then it won't get used. So Ashley needs to include those backstage strategies, that understanding of interoperability into her earliest design strategy. She won't necessarily have the resources to address those needs, but she needs to be identifying them as risks and get the um, ball rolling about how we're going to address those. So what's a soft feature? I only have one so far, but it's a biggie. And I would suggest that it is ubiquitous and it will be present in every single healthcare design project. 
and it's stigma. And stigma is um, a soft, fluid element that intertwines and winds its way through all of those pointy features. For Ashley, sensitivity to stigma is going to be foundational to helping her design something to support people in their needs. And just as each silo has its own culture and its own set of assumptions, each disease group or um, condition has its own associated particular sensitivities and stigmas. And that doesn't mean that every patient with that disease is going to have that experience. But for the designer, it's a pervasive feature of, of um, that needs area. And, um, and, and Ashley needs to develop a sensitivity about and have great antenna for looking out for, for those. So now that Ashley has her five principles from cross-cultural design and, and the point in soft framework, if she, if she goes back to work and starts to apply it, where could she be a couple of weeks from now? Well, she can use it to help her negotiate relationships on her team. She can use it to help navigate institutional constraints. She can use it to help mature her design practice to be culturally sensitive and to be um, culturally effective, to get stuff done. And as she build, builds credibility, she'll actually earn some trust. And as she earns some trust, she'll actually be given more freedom and she'll find herself with this space to be able to start to use some of the tools that she wants to use. And if she's really lucky, she'll find people who... Um, become advocates for what it is that she's trying to do. And if she's really, really lucky, she'll find people who are playful and who fall in love with service design tools and uh, who want to keep, keep using them. So this is not a definitive or exhaustive map. It's a work in progress. We need to make sense of the space together as practising designers. Some of us are talking about this at the moment, so please come and join the conversation. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from Service Design Canberra 2016. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au.